The following program does not offer personal medical advice. Please consult your doctor before using any treatment or product we cover. Welcome to Go to Health Radio with your host, Jonathan Marks. We provide a welcoming environment where experts educate you on important health topics, answer your questions, and provide information from which you can benefit in consultation with your doctor. And now, here is Jonathan Marks. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Go to Health. This is Jonathan Marks, your host, and I'm here today with Dr. Gurpreet Singh Pada. He's a medical physician and board certified in anesthesiology, addiction, and interventional pain. For over 20 years, he has practiced in the urban core in St. Louis, Missouri, helping patients to regain their metabolic health. And we're going to talk about the, the connection between metabolic health and pain and addiction. So I'm looking forward to that conversation with Dr. Pada. Pain is the final pathway, according to Dr. Pada, the body screaming that something has gone wrong. Dr. Pada treats patients at the intersection of the pain epidemic, the opioid epidemic, and diabetes epidemic, and they really all are epidemics. They are all interrelated pathologies, and they are the clinical manifestations of systemic meta-inflammation, which we will define. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pada. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much. Good. So let's talk about this connection between pain, opioids, diabetes, and um, and systemic meta-inflammation. Define that first for me. What is meta-inflammation? And then what's the connection with these interrelated pathologies? Yeah. So it's it's an algorithmic approach that I've taken to, to come to this conclusion. But essentially, metabolic inflammation or meta-inflammation is a change in our metabolism that leads to a diffuse increase in inflammatory positioning. And so let me give you an example, because I think that, that it becomes more relevant when, when, you, when you think of it a, a different way. Because if I use the term meta-inflammation, a lot of people don't get that. Yes. Um, but for example, let's say that I overeat sugars. Let's say that my insulin levels are high um, and I'm using insulin to drive these sugars into my cells and my cells become engorged with insulin and eventually, or with, with these sugars, and eventually my cells become resistant to the insulin. Um, and there's only a certain amount of sugar I can store and a lot of it becomes fat. Um, what happens is that fat itself, um, teleologically, from all the way back to the Drosophila model, um, fat itself is incredibly inflammatory. You're, the fat that you have in your abdomen is the early inflammatory marker, and it's a signaling mechanism for the rest of your body saying, hey, I just took something in that I shouldn't have taken in, and I better mobilize an inflammatory cascade because otherwise I'm going to die. So this is called the fat body in the dorsophila. The fat body in the dorsophila has three components. It has a liver component, it has a fat storage component, and it has a inflammatory component. Much of the fat is very metabolically active. Most people think of fat as just a reservoir of lipid, just a reservoir of stuff that just sits there and just looks bad. But that's not what it is. It's highly active. It produces a ton of hormones. 
and it produces certain things. It produces something called leptin. Leptin goes from your fat and goes to your brain and says, hey brain, I've been eating a lot of stuff and I'm not so hungry. Well, just like the liver can become resistant and doesn't see insulin after a while, your brain stops seeing leptin after a while and you become mm. leptin resistant. Mm. Well, that's one factor of leptin. But what people forget to realize is that leptin is one of the strongest and most aggressive cytokines that we have in our body. And so when you have hyperleptin and you're leptin resistant in your brain and, and your fat cells keep producing this leptin, you're producing an incredible cytokine inflammatory cascade. And a cytokine and so is? A cytokines are things reduced from one cell that go to another cell to activate them. And this particular word is cytokine inflammatory cascade. So this activates your macrophages. This activates your T cells. It activates an autoimmune response, even when you don't have a external threat because the cytokines are so high because leptin is so high and the leptin starts to then trigger this inflammatory cascade and these cells run around all over your body going hey where's the where's the fire where's the fire where's the fire and they start to release histamines they release other compounds which cause tremendous pain and discomfort oh. um, and it causes neuroinflammation in your brain which then makes your thinking fuzzy uh, and so it's a cascade of events. Uh, once you go down the path of viscerogenic obesity and insulin resistance, it's a very short step to hyperleptin, and it's an even shorter step than to severe metabolic inflammation. And as soon as you get there, you advance aging rapidly mm. because all of these cells start to attack the body and things start to fall apart. It's not just that the sugar is sticking to the cell walls. It's not just the sugar is causing fat accumulation. It's the secondary effects. So unfortunately, um, you know, historically humans didn't have enough food. We had malnutrition. Um, and now we have something called the malnutrition of excess. We've got too much food and our bodies simply haven't adopted, adapted to the fact that we have a surplus of available food. For millions of years, humans scrounged everything they could to just survive, to live on the bare minimum number of calories. We didn't get a farming revolution until about 10 or 15,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we haven't had time for evolutionary adaptation to be able to handle excessive caloric loading. Uh, we've only gotten to excessive caloric loading since the 1970s in combination with vegetable oil. Wow. So we haven't had enough time to adapt to this. And because we haven't adapted to it yet evolutionarily, um, we have a unregulated system. We, do, we don't have a check and balance to this. And so we, we keep gorging ourselves because historically we're wired to eat everything that we can get our hands on because we don't know when our next meal is gonna be in our, in our brain uh, from, the, from the standpoint of a cave person. We don't know if this is gonna be our last meal for two weeks. Mm -hmm. So we wanna store up fat as best as we can, because we may be on the move for the next two weeks as, as a cave person. Um, but all of a sudden we have a meal just an hour later and we have a snack after that. And we, our bodies have not had a chance to adapt to that. So okay. that's, that's long and short of that answer. Yeah, good. So let me ask you through in, in the word vegetable oil there, what was the relevance of vegetable oil? I missed that. Yeah. So 
um, there are no vegetables in vegetable oil. <laughs> so let, let's start with that. Okay. Uh, yeah. there, there are no vegetables in vegetable oil, but the, people have this misinformation because they've been marketed to thinking, well, vegetable must be healthy because it's vegetable oil. This is a synthetic industrial solvent that um, even up to the late 1800s was prohibited to even feed to animals. We wouldn't mm. give it to animals because it made animals incredibly overweight and diabetic and mm. would kill them. Um, and it was with Crisco, with the hydrogenation, that we started to adapt vegetable oil into, um, into our food sources as humans. And it was a very aggressive marketing campaign to get people to use uh, these synthetic solvents as something to cook with because we made people think it was cleaner to cook with. Right. Uh, it was the late 70s, though, that we had a huge uptick in the utilization of canola. Um, so what vegetable oil is, is a synthetic oil and it's called an omega-6. So there's a kink at the sixth carbon in the tail of the, of the, of the long chain of carbons. It's exactly the opposite for yin and yang comparison. It's the opposite of omega-3, which is a fish oil. What happens is that when you have a lot of omega-6, one, it's more likely that when it turns into a trans fat, you're not going to be able to sense that it's a trans fat. Um, the reason why is that vegetable oil, when it becomes rotted or oxidized, doesn't smell bad. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns into a trans fat with fluorescent lighting. So if you go buy vegetable oil at your grocery store, you're going to notice that it's in a clear bottle and it sits under fluorescent lighting. Well, it's already partially turning into a trans fat while it sits there. And people reuse the vegetable oil continuously and heating causes more trans fats. Oh, and we know that trans fats are associated with cancers and all kinds of hosts of other things. Well, omega-3s, which is a kink at the third carbon at the tail of the, of the thing, if they get oxidized, they smell like dead fish. Mm. We can't even be in the same room with an oxidized omega-3. Mm. And so what's the difference between the two? Other than the fact that one we can tell is oxidized and smells like crap. And the other one, when it's oxidized, we can't tell. The difference is, is in the way that the cell layers move. The outer shells and the inner shells of our cells are made predominantly with lipids. They're made with these fats. And the omega-6 and the omega-3s interact differently. The omega-3s leave a little bit more room between each molecule. The omega-6s compact more. The omega-3s have less compaction. So our fluidity... Our, our mobility in the cell wall is better with an omega-3. And it's a subtle thing, but if, if you have more mobility, the receptors that are buried into the wall work better. And they allow the cell to have more flexibility. Okay. Uh, it's a very subtle thing, but even that 1% to 3% change is all the difference between long-term survival and early advanced aging. So we talk about vegetable oils. Does that include olive oil? My no, favorite? olive oil is actually an oleic acid and okay. it's, it's different oil. In fact, it's, it's closer. Oleic acid actually is found a lot in, in pork products and olive oil. Uh, most of the time, unless it's being, um, unless somebody has adulterated it, um, is extremely healthy. Um, it's a very flexible oil. And it's not an omega six or omega three. It's a different. It's a different uh, polyunsaturated fat. Right. And when you talk about being a flexible, uh, what does flexibility mean? 
Flexibility means that when it's intercalated into the cell wall, when it's intercalated into that bilayer, it allows the layer to move more readily and keeps it looser. It's a, mm. it's a, it allows the receptors that are floating in that cell, wear, cell layer to open and close more easily. Mm. Uh, it also, it, done right, if it doesn't have a bunch of trans fat in it, um, it and it's not oxidized, then other things don't stick to it. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a concept of aging. The, the more fluidity that you have in those bilayers, um, the less aged a cell structure is. Uh. And it accumulates over time. So let, let me give you an example. Let's say that you have a ton of omega-6 as your predominant meal, which is what most Americans have. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 um, is supposed to be greater than 5.4. Most Americans are well below that. And almost all chronic pain patients, almost all addiction patients, and almost all diabetic patients that I see, almost all, like over 99%, their ratios are less than 5.4. Uh, it's mm. just, the test is called an omega check. It's very easy to tell what your relative um, inflammatory cascade load is. Um, and so what happens is, long-term, if you don't get control of your omega-6 to 3 fatty acid ratio, um, you get a high level of increased inflammation mm. and you get pre, um, you get unexpected early aging. Uh, okay. And we're seeing that even in kids now. And wow. we can measure it. We can, we can actually, and that's why we're starting to see type 2 diabetes show up in seven-year-olds that we never right. had before. They're getting insulin resistant in their liver uh, because the receptors don't work right. Um, and, you know, they, they're getting insulin resistant in their liver very, very early. Type 1 diabetes is the lack of insulin production. Type 2 diabetes is really excessive insulin production with insulin resistance in the liver and then, ex then accumulation of fat. Okay, so I want to summarize this in just a minute, but I, I didn't catch what is the connection between having a lot of sugar in your system and then how does that connect with the omega-6 and the omega-3? I'm not sure I caught that. Sure, um, I may have bypassed that. So uh, when you have, there's something called a Maillard reaction at, at the simplest ends of this. If you take bread and you heat the bread up, you'll notice that it browns and crisps. Mm -hmm. That's an oxidation. And so they, there are sugars in the bread that they oxidize and they become brown and crisp. Now on bread, it's kind of cool because it's crunchy in your mouth. But imagine a Maillard reaction occurring in your cells or on the surface of your cell. And if you have too much sugar over a very short time period, that sugar binds to the trans fats and it creates an early aging or a browning of, of your cells. And it makes them nice and crispy. Um, and so we measure that as something called hemoglobin A1C. It's a measure of sugar against hemoglobin. The higher your hemoglobin A1C is, the more Maillard reaction you've had and the more rigid your hemoglobin has become. And the more rigid it is, the less effectively it works. And it's not just hemoglobin A1C, it's just that's a surrogate marker, but you get these advanced glycation products and they cause severe increase in aging in all the cells of our body, including our brain.
Uh Um, And so part of this is related to like Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a concept of advanced aging in our brain. And it's really considered insulin resistance or type three diabetes of the brain. There's Mm. a significant component of this that's directly related to insulin resistance. Um, And so when you get this advanced aging in your brain, um, the cell structures don't work like they're supposed to. They're not flexible. Okay. And they don't, they, they kind of starve themselves almost. Okay. And then the connection to omega-6 and omega-3 is? Well, the more omega-6 you have, the more trans fat you generate. The more trans uh-huh. fat you generate, even in the presence of a small amount of sugar, you get more glycation. And uh, so the, the combination is deadly. It's, uh, it's like a perfect storm. You, you have both the thing that triggers it and the thing that ends up result, both causing the same end problem which is advanced aging at a very, very rapid age, very, very rapid level. Um, And when you get to that degree of neuroinflammation, a lot of your decision-making skills and your cognitive skills rapidly decline. Mm. Um, And that's why when we look at patients who have morbid exogenous obesity that are severely insulin resistant, when you measure them for their cognitive basis, their IQs are a little bit less because these sugars are preventing normal neuronal function. Um, and so this posits a very interesting challenge because when our kids are getting younger and younger and younger, getting type two diabetes, and when they're exposed to vegetable oil earlier and earlier, and they're getting more and more glycation, um, it may explain the obesity level in the school, but it may also explain the decreased academic performance. And it may also explain the attention deficit disorder and the the inability to make uh, social connections that we see in the urban core in our schools there. Wow, this is quite well, this is you're unpacking quite a, an issue here. And, and I know why you're talking about this is the epidemics. Um, so we're talking with Dr. Gurpreet Singh Pada. He's an MD. He's uh, board certified in anesthesiology, addiction, and interventional pain, and he works in the urban core in St. Louis, Missouri. We'll be back with Dr. Pada after this break, and what I want to talk about next is really um, how we minimize the effects of sugar and all these uh, byproducts that happen after we take in too much sugar into our body. So stay with us. This is Jonathan Marks with Go to Health Media. We'll be right back. Listen for Go to Health Radio, featuring host Jonathan Marks and health experts from around the world who bring evidence-based education from Western, alternative, and holistic practices. We bring together you, seeking relevant and proven information for your healthcare needs and reputable healthcare experts and companies who offer quality education for your benefit. Monthly, we also share continuing education for medical professionals. Listen live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to jonathanmarks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, we're back. This is Jonathan Marks with Go to Health, and we're, we're with Dr. Gurpreet Singh Pada. He's a medical physician, board certified in anesthesiology, addiction, and interventional pain. So in the first segment, 
Dr. Potter, we were talking about sugar and all of its uh, the effects that it has in the body when when you eat too much sugar. And boy, do we have a lot of sugar available to us in our diets, which is really unfortunate. But let me see if I can summarize what you said. So when we take in too much sugar, um, our bodies really can't handle it. In order to balance sugar, we we produce insulin, which helps neutralize. But um, if we take in too much sugar, we're trying to produce a lot of insulin, the body gets kind of exhausted of producing that and the cells themselves become resistant to this insulin. So they just kind of hold on to the sugar. And then the sugar can, um, if I got this right, the sugar creates inflammation, um, which causes, I guess, an increase in, in um, omega-6 and omega-6 can make our cells age more quickly. Do I have that in general correct? Well, so the omega-6 is an ingestion that we're having, and that's because our dietary intake is very high in omega-6. Okay. The reason why it's high in omega-6 is that when it's rancid, we can't tell that it's rancid. So the large food manufacturers want to sell a lot of omega-6 because you can't tell when it's gone bad. So that's a separate issue than the sugar. The mm -hmm. What the sugar is doing is it's creating a large flux of insulin. And insulin's job is to clear the bloodstream of too much sugar because the body knows that too much sugar is very, very toxic. Right now, your entire bloodstream right now probably has less than a teaspoon of sugar in it right now. And if you have to imagine that somebody picking up a big gulp or a soda probably has a half a cup or a quarter cup of sugar. And little kids are drinking two or three of those a day. Mm -hmm. And the body's doing everything it can to keep the sugar out of the bloodstream. So it produces insulin. Insulin, once the cells are full of, of a very limited amount of sugar storage, which is 2,000 kilocalories, that's how much glycogen you can store. Um, beyond that, it stores it as fat. And as it stores it as fat, the receptors themselves become resistant to the insulin. So the insulin continues to spike up. And then on top of that, we're eating vegetable oil and the vegetable oil is destroying the cell membrane and making the receptors even more resistant. So it's two factors Got it. ending up in the same place. And it's a synergistic, unfortunate effect that uh, results in us being very insulin resistant, advanced aging, uh, in, and then ending up with severe inflammation because the fat itself releases cytokines. And the cytokines are hyper-inflammatory because the fat is an inflammatory, it's a very, very active compound. Fat cells are not inert. They just don't sit there. They're very chemically active mm -hmm. and they produce cytokines, which activate the macrophages and the T cells, which then cause the severe uh, inflammatory cascade to kick in. Got it. So let's move from, so, so really what we're saying in short is that too much sugar creates inflammation. Right. Correct. And then we also have this other effect from consuming vegetable oils, which we're not talking about olive oil. We're talking about vegetable oils and they basically give us too much um, omega sixes and that ages our cells. Correct. Okay, good. All right. So now let's get to the topic of addiction. How does addiction enter in here? So addiction is very interesting. Um, I started this world trying to treat my pain patients and I very quickly realized that 
there was something going on with them. About 40% of them um, had some underlying issue with medication. They, they had an issue with uh, using medication in a way that it wasn't pre prescribed. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to self-medicate because they had pain, but they were overusing the medication. Now, that mm -hmm. could be because we're not giving them enough medication or it could be because something else is going on. Um, and this is the concept is called hedonic substitution. Hedonic substitution means that I'm going to take one thing that makes me feel good from this chemical pathway. And when I don't have access to it, I'm going to go to another chemical pathway that also triggers my dopamine to work and I'm going to substitute. So I found that there was a huge hedonic substitution going on between carbohydrates and between narcotics mm. um, and patients would would that would be another pathway that I would end up with extremely obese people. So they were starting off obese and now they were getting even worse mm. uh, and they were getting hedonic substitution. Now, in that process, trying to figure out what's going on, you know, is there an addiction issue or what, what's going on here? Um, I started to dig into how do we best manage these patients who are defined as addiction because they're using medication in a way that wasn't prescribed. Mm -hmm. um, and I quickly concluded that our model for addiction treatment is probably a little bit off. Hmm. And let me tell you why. Historically, we've, we've, we did experiments on, on rats and we said, hey, I'm going to take this rat. I'm going to put it into this uh, habitat. On one side, I'm going to put morphine in, in a water bottle. And on the other side, I'm going to put water in a water bottle. And I'm going to watch what the rat does. And the rat went and sniffed both sides and preferentially went to the morphine side and would overdose and die. And so on that basis, we said rats that have the ability to gain access to narcotics overdose and die. So it must be the ability to get to the drug that allows rats to overdose and die. So anybody that has access to that drug must simply just use too much of it and overdose and die. And so that was the initial concept. But then we had the Vietnam War. And about half the people in the Vietnam War that were out in the field were using heroin. And we were convinced that when these people came back, we were gonna have zombies walking the streets in the US and half of them were gonna be narcotic addicts. They were gonna be heroin addicts. Lo and behold, they got back to the United States and less than 5% of them were narcotic addicts in hmm. the US, but half of them were narcotic addicts there. What happened? Did the plane make them stop being narcotic addicts? And no, it wasn't the plane flight that did this. What it turned out was that in Vietnam, the people were in individual silos of, of by themselves. They were lonely. They, they didn't have social interaction. And, that's, and they got to the U.S. and they had social interaction. So they redid the rat study. They went back to the rats and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to take these rats. We're going to put them in a bigger cage. And we're going to give them water on one side. We're going to give them morphine on the other side. But in between, we're going to give them toys to play with. We're going to give them other rats to have sex with. We're going to give them wheels to play on. We're going to create an enriched environment. And we're going to see what happens. Lo and behold, the rats got dropped in. They tried the water. They tried the morphine. They left the morphine alone. And they never went back to it. Nobody overdosed and died. And they just played with their friends. It's the fact that you create silos of loneliness that triggers a significant component of addiction overdose behavior. Mm. And I think that that is one of the things that we miss in addiction. Um, mm. A lot of times, we, what we do is we go toward harm reduction 
and simply giving people a substitution, a hedonic substitution, one medication for another. Right. Um, but we miss the fact that we've dropped these people into silos of loneliness and we further isolate them. Um, and certainly that's what happened during our recent COVID issue. Um, we have a historic increase in addiction overdose mm. because people were self-isolated in loneliness and they, we, we had a dramatic increase in overutilization and over addiction. And people mm. didn't have access even to prescription medication, but they went out on the street and they found medication because that's the only thing they could do. And they were so isolated, they didn't have a social network. And so we had about a 30% increase, which is a historic increase. That's uh, we've had the largest life expectancy drops since World War II during this recent um, pandemic. I didn't know a this. A big part of that was this addiction overdose issue. And I mean, certainly the fentanyl is, is an issue because people can't recognize how strong the fentanyl is. But even beyond that, people accessing the fentanyl, lonely and isolated and depressed. So in when you have a lot of pain in your body, I guess what you're also saying is it puts you, this pain may put you into some kind of social isolation and stress. It does. Uh, we know that individuals who develop a chronic pain are about 50% more likely to divorce. We know that they will drop in socioeconomic value as in terms of a, as a family unit by about two quartiles. Um, and so we know that there's more isolation, more economic deprivation, and more divorce rates. Um, right. And we know that even their family members start to get more depressed. If you have a family member who has a major uh, pain issue, even the family members around them, the, the penumbra zone, the area around them, also starts to get more and more depressed. And so that, that's a major factor. Um, wow. It's, it's not just the patient that's in pain. It's the entire family unit that develops these, um, almost an ostracization effect. So um, if somebody's in chronic pain and, and severe pain, they, they may be um, tempted to turn to you know, pain um, reducing drugs and become addicted to them. What's an alternative for them that's healthy? So what we try to do in our clinic is we try to unwrap this. We, we try to get to the root cause. You know, what's your original reason for your pain? And let's see if that's still there. And if mm -hmm. it's still there, we have to deal with that. And so it typically starts off as a mechanical issue. Did you injure your back? Did you have a lifting injury? Did you damage your facet? Do you have a torn disc? What happened originally? That's right. one element. The next element is what are the cascades after that that are maintaining this pain level? Um, is it a dietary issue? Is it a issue of deconditioning? Um, is it an issue that you stopped moving altogether? Have you, have you changed your diet? I'll give you an example that seems strange at first, but there's a lot of similarity between human, um, human spine and animal spine. And there's a lot of similarity in the muscle structure back there. And so if you look at individuals that are humans and you did a cross section of their lower lumbar spine and you said, I can identify who has pain without you even telling me by looking at a cross section of their spine, you go, how are you going to tell that? And I tell you, I'm going to look at the amount of fat that's accumulated between the muscles. And I can tell you who has severe deconditioning injury. Mm. You'll see in a fatty intercalation. 
Now, if you look at animal models, you get something very similar, but in animal models, I can induce it by making them leucine deficient, a, a particular I, amino acid. And so you can get the same effect by dietary change in humans. Um, if you change the different amounts of amino acids of different um, that, you, that you give to humans, they get more fatty intercalation. It's kind of like getting to Wagyu beef. If you mm -hmm. give Wagyu beef a ton of grain, it gets fatty intercalation. And mm -hmm. it tastes really good um, because it has all that extra fat, um, but it's not the perfect, healthiest, strong, sinewy muscle. Right. Um, but the softer muscle has more, um, more fat intercalation and it doesn't work as well. Uh -huh. It's the same thing with the lumbar spine. Right. Uh, it, the, the Wagyu beef of the lumbar spine looks very similar when it has fatty intercalation. Um, so, what so, they, do we, so what do we do to reduce the fat and there, thereby reduce the pain? Um, so what we do is we change people's diet. We, we change what they eat and we reduce their carbohydrate loading. Mm -hmm. And then we start to recondition them. Uh, and it's very subtle things. It's not, it, these aren't passive things. What we want to do is we want to rebuild their muscle. We mm -hmm. want to rebuild the, um, the strength of the muscle that's in their lower lumbar spine or in their neck, you know, wherever it is that you're working. Because historically, you know, you, as an animal, we will adapt and, and just overcome most pain pathologies in a few days, unless we have chronic inflammation. Right. Uh, if we have chronic inflammation, then that stuff hangs around forever. And those are the patients that I see. But most people, you know, if I injure your back with a mechanical load, about five to 10 days later, maybe two weeks later, you're going to heal up and be fine unless you have metabolic dysfunction. Uh -huh. Then you're going to have all of these secondary effects. And so then I'm going to have to un uh, take all this onion and un <laughs> take all the layers down, right. fix the underlying problem, and then rebuild you by changing your diet and then giving you the appropriate biomechanical forces to rebuild your muscle. So if I can just summarize what I've learned so far, it seems to me pretty simple, which is if you wanna stay healthy, you gotta reduce the sugar in your diet because sugar just by itself doesn't naturally occur. It's, it's in a lot of the foods we eat and it's profitable for companies to sell it but you're taking in too much sugar. So you got to stop taking in too much sugar. And then you also got to stay in shape. That's and you got to, you got to eliminate the vegetable oil. Right. Um, and then eliminate the vegetable oil. The thing is, oil. if you Thank don't you. eliminate that vegetable oil, it's going to take too long for the redu redu reduction in sugar to make a difference. For you. Got it. Now, how, how about butter? Butter's fine. Butter's fine. So um, butter and olive oil are fine. Yeah. Butter, olive oil, uh, saturated fat from animals, uh, duck fat okay. uh, is amazing. Um, how about coconut avocado oil? oil is fine. I'm how about sorry? coconut oil? Coconut oil coconut has become oil, very popular. Yeah, it's it's a very good heating oil. It's it, with the nice part about coconut oil is you can use it to heat and to fry things if you wanted to. Um, and you know if it's treated appropriately, and you're not repeatedly using it, uh, it doesn't make a lot of trans fat. I see. But you know the thing is, you can't take oil like at a restaurant and I've owned five restaurants. So, I mean, I, I understand uh -huh. this business. Um, you can't take vegetable oil and constantly reheat it and just clean the debris out of it and then heat it again and use it again. Most restaurants will use the same oil three to five days in a row oh boy, uh, or longer. And uh, in, in China, we call that sewer oil. Uh, in China, people harvest used vegetable oil out of the sewers, clean it and then resell it wow. as, as vegetable oil but it's all trans fat. Uh -huh. uh, after it's been heated even once, it starts to denature quickly. After it's been under fluorescent light, it's, it starts to denature. 
You so just can't tell by the smell. So coconut oil is okay, but once you use it, you should just discard it and yeah, use you a fresh batch it. next time. Right. Okay. Is that is so? What kind of oil is is coconut oil? That's not. It's it's an uh, it's a it's a polyunsaturated fat, but it's not an omega six or a three. So okay. there's omega six and three are just happens to be where the kink in the carbon is on that particular polyunsaturated fat, Got and that's it. the one that we most commonly have. But okay. there are a whole host of uh, different carbon lengths that determine what we call that oil. Those there we could go on for hours on just. Right trying to figure out uh, palmitic oil versus oleic oil. Um, there, there's dozens of dozens and dozens of these oils and they each mean something different. But bang for buck, if you want to make the biggest difference, get rid of your vegetable oil. And that, okay. that that's and instead supplement orally um, with omega-3, which is fish oil. And that can occur, come about by taking fish oil or krill oil, or it can come about by increasing your fish consumption. Interesting. Um, that has a bunch of fish oil in it. Great. Good. So we're talking with Dr. Gurpreet Singh Pada. He's a medical physician, board certified in anesthesiology, addiction, and interventional pain. This is a fascinating discussion, doctor. We're going to continue with Dr. Pada, and we're going to talk about how you can get in touch with him, how you can work with him in our next segment. So stay with us. This is Jonathan Marks with Go to Health. Listen for Go to Health Radio, featuring host Jonathan Marks and health experts from around the world who bring evidence-based education from Western, alternative, and holistic practices. We bring together you, seeking relevant and proven information for your healthcare needs and reputable healthcare experts and companies who offer quality education for your benefit. Monthly, we also share continuing education for medical professionals. Listen live every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on Voice America Variety. You are listening to Go to Health Radio. To reach Jonathan Marks or his guest expert on the live program, call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to jonathanmarks at gotohealthmedia.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. This is Jonathan Marks with Dr. Gurpreet Pada. He's a medical physician in anesthesiology, addiction, and interventional pain. So, doctor, you've given us such great information about uh, our diet and fixing our diet and reducing sugar, reducing vegetable oil, which has a lot of omega-6, which is not so great. It kind of toasts our cells, as you were talking about before. And then we're talking about also uh, staying physically healthy, uh, which can keep you away from pain and inflammation. So if people want to work with you, doctor, tell us how do you work with people? Do you see patients virtually? Do you see people in person? Let us know about that. So we do both. Most of my interventional practice is direct um, because I got to lay on of hands. I, I have to physically examine patients and I have to do procedures to try to figure out how to interventionally improve them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the interventional practice is located in St. Louis, Missouri, and we directly treat patients and we do it five days a week, six days a week sometimes. And we use x-ray guidance to help us figure out where to go and use live fluoroscopy and a whole host of other diagnostic tools to figure out how to define and treat patients' individual pain. 
And how far and how far away, I'm sorry, excuse me, how far away do patients come to see you to work with you on interventional pain? Uh, two to 300 miles, typically. Wow. So the adjoining two or three states. Um, and usually what we do is if somebody's in a remote location, we try to find somebody else who's an interventionalist in their area mm. that we can collaborate with and discuss. Uh -huh. um, we're kind of different than most interventionalists because we don't stop at the border of, well, we did this one epidural steroid injection, you didn't get better, so it's time for surgery. Um, what we try to do is be a little bit more discreet and specific and try to ascertain the different causes, the, the layers of causes of somebody, somebody's symptom, and then work at it that way. Um, and that typically involves reversing their severe metabolic inflammation. Right. Uh, and most pain physicians that are in, that are interventional and non-interventional never get to that level. They never get to the root cause of the patient's symptom. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, and then with regards to the diabetes, the obesity, uh, and even the addiction, we do that predominantly through telemed. Mm. Um, we have two different websites. Um, the addiction side is on www.addictionology.center. And the, the Reversing Diabetes and Obesity website is www.reversediabetesmd. And if you have questions on the pain side, it's www.painmd.tv. What we do is we interact with patients remotely on the diabetes and on the addiction side. And we're able to walk them through the process of getting their health back. I have amazing results, especially on the obesity and diabetes side, because mm -hmm. we can take a type 2 diabetic that's on moderate to high dose insulin and get them off their insulin in a few weeks, mm. as long as they're producing some insulin underlying. So mm -hmm. we do a lot of um, testing before we, before we say, okay, well, we can do this. Because right. what we want to know is, are they still producing insulin? And if their C-peptide is there, and we can see that they have the cap capacity for producing insulin, then we know that if we just slightly reduce their weight in their pancreas, about 800 grams is all it takes, 800 grams of fat to come out of the pancreas, that their body is going to start jumping up their production of insulin. Oh. And as soon as it does that, they don't need the outside insulin. Mm -hmm. And we're able to rapidly then cascade into getting them off their meds. Um, I spend most of my day, instead of prescribing patients medications, I spend most of my day trying to figure out how to de-prescribe their medications, get them off their meds and do it in a safe way. I mean, the number one cause of hypertension is actually too much insulin. It, mm -hmm. Idiopathic hypertension is really hyperinsulinemia. It's a proximal renal tubule defect from hyperinsulinemia. Wait, wait, wait. You, you just twisted my head. Tell me that statement again. The number one cause of idiopathic hypertension, high blood pressure, yes. is hyperinsulinemia. And wow. I can tell you that the vast majority of patients that are diabetic have yeah. never had their insulin level measured. They get their hemoglobin A1C measured, but they never get their insulin level measured. And even before you become diabetic, before your hemoglobin A1C goes up, your insulin level dramatically increases. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes into me with a little bit of obesity, you know, they're 20 pounds overweight, but they're not diabetic yet. When I measure their insulin, it's going to be extraordinarily high. Mm -hmm. And there are very specific blood tests that we use. We use something called LPIR, which is a lipoprotein insulin resistance. And it's, it's, it's an insurance approved test. Mm -hmm. uh, we measure their 
low density uh, lipid LDLP particle count, mm -hmm. uh, and we measure their insulin level, and that generates an LPIR score, which tells us how insulin resistant they are, and it correlates significantly with their hypertension. Mm -hmm. um, so before you become diabetic, your insulin levels rise. Those insulin levels affect your kidney, and it prevents your sodium from being excreted, and that's what drives your hypertension. Got it. Um, and so okay. it, it's, it, you know, idiopathic hypertension just doesn't happen because you're getting older. It happens because your aging accelerates from too much insulin. Mm -hmm. And do, do you, what kind of insurances do you take? Do you take Medicare, Medicaid? and We're on all the insurances. Uh, we pretty much are, I, I can't even tell you one that we're not on. Okay. Uh, there are certainly a few plans that we're not on, but the vast majority of time, I mean, most of your laboratory testing is covered by your insurances. Over 80, 90% of it is. Right. Uh, there's not a lot of extra expense. We don't charge some ridiculous amount of money for, for telemed. So most of it is coaching and cajoling and, you know, pushing patients to recognize that just because they failed 20 times before, this may be different. The typical way of losing weight in the United States has been hey, um, Joe, I want you to move more and I want you to eat less. Mm -hmm. I got to tell you that your chances of success with that is one chance in 165. Oh, dear. That's the statistical chance. That's less than 1%. If you go to your doctor and he says, just move more, eat less, you're almost guaranteed a failure. Okay. So, so how do we get success? How we get success is we change our dietary intake and we fulfill our satiety needs because we, we have to fulfill the satiety need in your brain. Now, what, what is that? Satiety is your sense of fullness. Okay. Because the thing is, if you feel hungry all the time, then you're not gonna fulfill your satiety and then you're gonna overeat. And okay. then you're gonna eat the thing that causes you the most amount of inflammation, which right. is vegetable oil and sugar. So we have to change your behavioral response and relationship with food. And in, you know people talk about, Breakfast is the best meal of the day. It's the best meal of the day. It's the best meal of the day for the cereal companies because it makes you hungry for the rest of the day and you end up <laughs> eating five or six meals. See, okay. historically, humans didn't wake up first thing in the morning and go to the refrigerator and get food. They had to go and get the food. It might take them six hours to get it. And when they got it, they gorged and then they didn't eat again maybe till the next day. Uh -huh. So the thing is, if you eat five or six small meals a day, you have tremendous insulin excursions and those insulin excursions cause even a small amount of sugar to be accumulated as fat. And so we, we, we take a more holistic approach to getting people feeling full and not eating all the time. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a big chunk of what we do. Um, fortuitously, as, you know, as soon as patients recognize what's going on, then they take off on their own. They, they, once they, once you give them the right tools and the right model in their head of what to look for, then a lot of times they're, they're, they're able to push off on their own. My main job is to de-prescribe and to get them off their meds because if I don't and I let them stay on their high dose insulin as I'm getting their sugars down, they'll have right. a problem. Or if they're on blood pressure medicine, especially diuretics, they'll drop their potassium and then they'll have cardiac dysrhythmias. So I have to very quickly mod modify and modulate their meds so that it's safe for them over a short time period. Okay. Uh, and once I get them through that first part, um, 
the rest of it's pretty easy. It just right. takes time at that point. Yeah, and then there's the second part, which you talked about, which is getting more active. So how do you how do you help people with that? So it's not the amount of activity necessarily. So initially, it could be as simple as do what you can do, but make sure you do it after you've eaten. Uh. Because what I want you to do is I want you to walk initially after you eat, five or 10 minutes. I want to get you out in the sun if I can, and I want you to walk. Why? It's because I want to activate the largest muscles in your body, which are in your quads, and I want to make them more insulin sensitive. I mm -hmm. want your quads to pick up that sugar that was in your meal, and I want it to deposit into your quads, not into your liver. Mm -hmm. um, and first of all, I don't want you to eat the sugar, right? Uh, but if there is some sugar in there, if there is some unrefined carbohydrate, I want it to go to your quads. So that's a big chunk of it, is start with minimal amounts of physical activity. Do what you can do. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is 80% of this is dietary. I don't really push my patients to high physical activity until I bring their biomechanical weight down. Mm -hmm. And and it's as simple as just walking a little bit. Once I've gotten them past, you know, past that initial component, then I start an exercise regimen. And it's focused in on the biomechanics of their body. If they have low back pain, then they're doing kettlebell swings. If they have neck pain, there's different exercises. Mm -hmm. If they have, you know, different kinds of pains like SI joint dysfunction, um, we have different exercises for them. So then it's really tailored into an exercise program that's specific for their underlying pathology. We have about seven or eight different steps that we take in our in our uh, protocols, but the commonality is is to get people back to back to how we lived in the 1930s and 1940s. You know, mm -hmm. expose them to the sunlight, get their vitamin D levels up, get them moving again, get them away from refined carbohydrates, get them away from vegetable oils, uh, get them eating real food. Um, mm -hmm. And so those are all the things that we go through. Good. So this is wonderful, doctor. Thank you so much. Um, so if you want to get in touch with Dr. Pata and his team and start working with them, if you've got diabetes, you can go to reversediabetes.md. That's reversediabetes.md. And if you have a problem of addiction, you can go to addictionology.center. That's addictionology.center. And we are posting these two websites and a connection with Dr. Pata on our website at gotohealthmedia.com. So you can go there. You can watch this interview. I recommend watching it or listening to it again because Dr. Pata has given us a lot of great information. And if you listen to it again, it'll go in deeper. It'll retain more about what he has set, had to say, and it'll be very beneficial for you. So let me ask you in the few, uh, next few minutes we have, doctor, how did you get into this whole area of medicine? What motivated you? What was, what was your path? So it was a very circuitous path. Um, I'm not from here. I'm from India. I grew up in the northern part of India, uh, in Punjab. We relocated when I was nine. Um, I was the only brown kid with a turban in an all-black school in wow. the urban core. Uh, then I went to high school in the county, and I was the only brown kid with a turban in an all-white school. So I didn't fit in in either place. Uh -huh. um, and so I, you know, I, I got an opportunity to observe a lot and to think, because you know, first of all, I didn't speak the language, and the only word I knew was bathroom. 
Um, and, and then as I did learn the language, I realized I wasn't like the other kids. And so I didn't get to do the other things that everybody else got to do. Um, and so I had an opportunity, the privilege of being able to observe a lot and observe behavior. Mm -hmm. So I, I've always looked at situations wondering, how does that work? Um, and then I went to medical school. I went to a six-year med program up in Kansas City. Um, and at that point, I was experimenting with being a vegetarian until the very day that I ended up uh, standing in front of Gates Barbecue, smelling it, wondering, that smells delicious. Right. Uh, maybe I'll go in there and, and test it and just to look around. And when I walked out of there, I wasn't a vegetarian anymore. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm willing to uh, observe and willing to look at situations and then willing to make changes. Um, right. I'm constantly trying to figure out the ideal solution and trying to fit it within the model and a scope of what I observe. Mm -hmm. I also did tropical disease um, in Irian Jaya uh, and live with headhunters. Mm -hmm. And I also did tropical medicine in uh, the north, uh, north of Australia and live with Aborigines. Uh, and again, I was I was the, the odd man out. I was the, I was the one that did, wasn't like the rest of them. Right. And so I got an opportunity to study a lot of multicultural things and trying to understand that culture and wonderful with solutions. Good. Dr. Pata, thanks so much for being with us today. We're at the end of our show. But again, it, I, this has been brilliant in terms of pain and addiction and diabetes. Um, if you're, if you have any one of these problems, I highly recommend you get in touch with Dr. Pata. He can help you in many ways virtually through telemed and then also refer you to local pain intervention uh, physicians that he can uh, put, uh, put you in contact with. So we're talking with Dr. Gurpreet Singh Pata, MD, and his two websites are reversediabetes.md and addictionology.center. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Pata. This has been fabulous. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great. So this is Jonathan Marks with Go to Health Media, and you can visit us at gotohealthmedia.com and watch us and get the information you want to stay in touch with these wonderful, wonderful health experts. Have a great week, everybody. We'll see you next week. And Dr. Pata, thanks again for being here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a good week, everybody. And remember, go to health. Thank you for tuning in this week to Go to Health Radio. Be sure to join Jonathan Marks and another health expert next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You can also catch the program on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next show, be sure to visit us on the web at gotohealthmedia.com and elevate your life.